This morning, we continue in Mark's Gospel. I told you last summer that I was going to do a a series in the summer through the Psalms. And at the time, I I wasn't planning to lie to you, but I'm really enjoying the Gospel of Mark right now. And so, um, for the time being, we're in Mark. We, We may dive back into the Psalms for the summer at some point, but I have just been blessed in my time of study and devotion in the Gospel of Mark, and so I'm going to continue in the Gospel of Mark uh, for a bit longer, uh, at least through today, and we find ourselves in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. You'll remember last week we covered a a pretty large section of Scripture. We went from verse 1 to verse 26, and we saw that Jesus and the disciples are talking about two different types of bread. The disciples are still thinking about physical bread, and Jesus is talking about a spiritual bread, the satisfaction that comes from partaking of Jesus by faith, from being united with Jesus in faith, and and they don't see it, they don't understand it. And so we concluded last week with the miracle of the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida, who is healed in stages. His eyes are open partially, and he can see, but it's a bit blurry, and then Jesus touches him again and he's able to see clearly. And we saw last week that that's a sign to the disciples that Jesus will graciously open their eyes and it it might take some time. And in fact, our entire walk of the Christian life, Christ is enabling us through fellowship with other believers, through engagement with His local church, through the study of the Scriptures to see Him ever more clearly. And so it's no accident that in the passage we're about ready to read that The disciples, with Peter as their spokesman, will confess who Jesus is. They're finally going to begin to see. Would you read with me from Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Jesus went out, along with His disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He questioned His disciples, saying to them, Who do do people say that I am. They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed. Ashamed of him 
when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Would you pray with me? God, help us in the few moments that we have to really understand who You are, why You came, and how we must respond. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I struggled to know how to title this section of of verses, and I I really wanted to give it a, a few titles, and so I'll just tell you all of them. The first was three questions every true disciple must answer, and those questions are, who is Jesus, why did He come, and how must we respond? And the answers to those questions are summed up in these words, the crown, the cross, and the cost. He is the King. He is the anointed King of God. He is the Messiah. He wears the crown. But He came to go to the cross. And because we follow a King who went to the cross to rescue humanity, we too must be willing to pay the cost. Three questions, three answers every true disciple must answer and must give. You see, until this moment in Mark's Gospel... Jesus' disciples have been physically present with Jesus, but they still have not seen the significance of who He is, of the One who has called them. So, the disciples have been ranged on a scale against Jesus from misunderstanding to opposition to this point. And the warning for us, church, is that we could be really close to Jesus, that our proximity to Jesus could be quite close, but that does not automatically bring faithfulness to Jesus and His mission. It's not enough to sit in a church pew. It's not even enough to sit in a church pew 52 Sundays in a row. Proximity to Jesus does not equal faithfulness to Jesus. But Jesus will not leave His disciples where they are. He will lead His disciples and He wants to lead His church to places of deeper and deeper faithfulness. Like the blind man at Bethsaida. He wants to open our eyes to see who He is. You see, to be a true disciple, a real follower of Jesus, our spiritual eyes need to be answered to answer these questions. Who is Jesus? What must He do? And how must we respond In answering those questions, the text shows us that to be faithful followers of Christ, there's three things that we must do. First, we must personally confess Jesus is the Messiah King. Secondly, we must understand Jesus' victory comes only through His death and resurrection. There's no other way. And thirdly, we must deny ourselves and do whatever it takes to live for the sake of Christ And the gospel. First, we must personally confess Jesus is the Messiah King. Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ in verse 29 comes smack dab in the middle of Mark's gospel. Because the proper confession of who Jesus is really should stand at the center of the life of every disciple and the life of every true church. You see, after healing the blind man in stages, Jesus and the disciples take a 25-mile hike to Caesarea Philippi where the population is mostly Gentile and mostly pagan. And Jesus shows here in the heart of Gentile pagan territory that He can open blind eyes. And now He begins to open the blind hearts of His disciples with a question. Who do people say that I am? Have you noticed that Jesus likes to ask questions? I love asking questions. You know why questions are good? 
They force people to think about their assumptions. Did you know a lot of times we make inaccurate assumptions? So Jesus forces people to think and ponder and consider and reflect, is what I have assumed to be true really true? And He has a way of piercing through the assumptions and getting to the heart of a matter by asking a question. He asks questions because so often our default responses are inaccurate and incorrect. And He wants us to follow Him, not just to follow Him, but to follow Him in spirit and in truth. You see, the disciples can't fulfill their role unless they understand Jesus' true identity and the purpose for which He has come. The disciples give some answers about what people say, and they remind us of the answers that we heard back in chapter 6 with Herod Antipas. Some say he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Others say that he's Elijah, or perhaps some other prophet. In other words, people in that day, as people in our day, had favorable opinions of Jesus. You go, do the man on the street, tell me about Jesus. Oh, he's a good teacher, he's a good man, he helped a lot of people, he did some healings, and he died a long time ago. But he was a pretty cool guy. You see, the problem with just having a favorable opinion of Jesus is that all the favorable opinions except one still fall eternally short of His greatness. So Jesus makes the question personal. Have you noticed it's easier to give the opinion of others than it is to give the answer for yourself? So Jesus warms them up on the way. Tell me what everybody else is saying about me. Ah, Jesus, that's no problem. That's a... That's a softball. We'll knock that out of the park. And then Jesus says, but you, the word you is emphasized. It's put at the front of the sentence and it's stated twice. But you, who do you say I am? Danny Aiken says this is the inescapable question of discipleship and it has only one acceptable answer. You see, it's easy to answer what others say about Jesus. But Jesus asks of each of us this morning, and He asks of our church this morning, Who am I? Jesus will not allow us, North Roanoke, to be ambivalent or indecisive about His identity and to continue knowing the nearness of His presence. This is the challenge for so many. They come to church, they sit in a pew, they get close to the things of God, the Spirit begins to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment, and they feel uncomfortable with it, and so they leave. You can't continue to stay around the things of God and not make a decision about who Jesus is. Jesus will force you to answer the question, and if you refuse to answer the question, then you've given the answer. Jesus says today is a time for choosing. The presence of Jesus demands a verdict about His identity. The disciples know this. They know it instinctively when they're on the stormy sea and He calms the raging wind. They ask to themselves in chapter 4, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey Him? The presence of Jesus demands a verdict. And Jesus says to His disciples, It's time to stop asking the question, and it's time to start giving the answer. Edwards makes this helpful observation. Jesus asks for a judgment about Him in the midst of the journey. Not at the end, when all the questions are answered and the proof is finally in hand. You've got to decide now. It's got to be a decision made in faith. 
Today is the day to stand up and declare, as Peter does, that Jesus is God's anointing, anointed King, that He is the Messiah, not just Savior, not just friend and healer and rescuer and provider and deliverer. Yes, He's all those things, but He is the Messiah. He is God's anointed King for all nations. He is the King to whom every true disciple must pledge His unconditional allegiance. And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, gives the right answer. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord's anointed King of Psalm chapter 2, who although He will be opposed by the kings of all the nations, He is the Lord's King installed on Zion's hill. The disciples understand they are following God's victorious King, and they're just wondering when the victory is going to show up. They understand that His victory belongs to people who follow Him with the totality of their lives and their calling and their commitments. They understand that Jesus wears the crown of God's unrivaled regal authority in all the earth, but they do not yet understand that the King who wears the crown must secure His victory and our victory through the cross. So Jesus commands in verse 30 Peter to be silent because he understands in part who Jesus is, but he does not yet understand fully. And so Jesus says, don't say anything yet. Why? Because he doesn't want a revolutionary fervor to erupt among the disciples. They must first understand that he's not only the Messiah, that he's come to go to the cross. Which, number two, the second thing we must see is why Jesus came. We must understand Jesus has come because His victory, to get, He's come to go to the cross, and His victory comes only through His death and resurrection. We see this in verses 31, 32, and 33. As the disciples' eyes are beginning to open to the reality of who Jesus is, Jesus takes this opportunity to clarify their vision even more. In verse 31, He begins to teach that He must die. I love those words, began to teach. He, he could have taught them one time. He could have given them a quick little synopsis, but he began to teach them. Did you know that discipleship, becoming a follower of Christ, is a lifelong process of hearing and heeding the teachings of Christ about who He is? Do you see the grace in this? Jesus was committed to continue teaching His disciples. Three times in three chapters, Jesus predicts that He must die and be raised from the dead. The word must means in the Greek must have to got to do it. Bound to something, tied to something, constrained by something. Jesus is not yet on the cross, but his mission has been bound to the cross from the beginning. Jesus must get to the cross. There's no other way. It is God's ordained way for His Son. As Aiken writes, a king who dies is not what the disciples expected, it's not what they wanted, but it is what they desperately needed. Jesus is not only God's King, He's also God's Son and God's servant, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, sent to bring a victory so much greater than the disciples could yet see. That means the Messiah King who's going to wear the crown must die the cruel death of the cross because he must accomplish what Genesis 3 promised that the son would bruise his heel and in the bruising of his heel he would crush the head of Satan he must accomplish the promise of Isaiah 53:11 as a result of the anguish 
of his soul. My servant will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Jesus did not just come to establish a kingdom. He came to undo the curse of death and to have a kingdom that was also a new creation. And the only way for everlasting death to die is for everlasting life to come and swallow it whole. The cross was not a plan B. It is why Jesus came. Verse 32 says that Jesus spoke this matter, or literally this word, to His disciples plainly. He spoke it plainly. You see, it isn't just Jesus' message that alarms Peter and the disciples. It's the way that He spoke the message. He spoke it with conviction and with clarity and with openness and boldness. Have you ever encountered somebody who knows that they know what they're telling you in that moment and they will not stand down, they will not back down? This is the truth. That is the way that Jesus is speaking. And it captures the attention of the disciples in a way that is shaking them to the core. There's no hesitation in Jesus' voice. There's no doubt implied by His cadence. There's no invitation to debate the matter in His phrasing. The need for the cross is decided. The case is closed. He must go to the cross. And that's too much for Peter and the disciples. So Peter, God bless him, Pulls Jesus aside and gives him a little talking to. Can you imagine that? Hey Jesus, let me help you out here, buddy. I just want to make sure I caught what you said. Because you said it really convincingly. And it was really clear that you're saying you're going to die. And I just I want to help you out with that here, Jesus. So just come on over. I mean, I know you call him the wind and the waves and everything. But just let me help you out, Jesus. And then Peter rebukes Jesus. The word is the same word that's, that's used of Jesus' rebuke of the demons earlier in the gospel. He, Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him like Jesus rebuked the demons. Peter is implying that Jesus' statement is demonic. But Jesus confirms it is actually Peter's rebuke of him, which is satanic and it's man-centered. As Edwards writes, Peter, in a way that he cannot know, opposes the deep mystery of God. For suffering is the only way to destroy the stronghold of Satan. Which is Jesus' declared purpose from early in the Gospel. You might say, as Ralph Martin quipped, Jesus and Peter are at cross purposes. The blind, deaf, and prideful human heart resists a victory that requires the death of Jesus in our place. But God has promised from the beginning that He alone could be our rescuer and that our rescuer must come through the death and resurrection of His Son for His people. But Satan, that old adversary, will do whatever he can to get us, church, to accept and promote a crossless salvation. Because a salvation that doesn't include the cross is no salvation at all. A crossless salvation cannot motivate us, by the way, in the costly way of Jesus. The way of Jesus in which He walked to Jerusalem to go to the cross. He can't motivate us to take up our cross and die daily. You see, we've got to understand who Jesus is and why He came and what it cost Him to rescue us because Jesus is calling those that He calls true disciples to walk in the same way that He walked. 
In verse 27, it says that Jesus is on the way to Caesarea Philippi. And we think at first that means he's just on the way to the next city. But what we learn over the next four chapters is that we will read the words on the way nine times. And Jesus is not on the way to Caesarea Philippi. He's on the way to Jerusalem with a holy intentionality to go to the cross to rescue his church and to rescue his people. And when Jesus says, follow me on the way, what he means is, you too must us to go the way of the cross. Which brings us to our final point this morning. We must deny ourselves and do whatever it takes to live for the sake of Christ and the gospel. I've been asked in recent days, Daniel, I, I just, I'm trying to understand who you are and what you're all about. What's, what makes you tick? In Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 35, you'll find the verse that makes me tick. Giving our lives for the sake of Christ and the sake of the Gospel is why we are here. That's it. To give our lives for the sake of Jesus and the sake of the Gospel. I, I dream about a church filled with people who come so excited to worship the King who gave His life for them and then to go out and give their lives in service of that King so that others might know of His great sacrifice on their behalf and they might know the joy of dying to themselves and living for the King who reigns and will surely save them. Verse 34 begins with an invitation not just to the disciples but to anyone. Aren't you glad that Jesus invites anyone? The good news is that Jesus gives an invitation to anyone who wants to come after Him. The challenge comes in what He says next. It's a great invitation, but then it's followed by some very challenging words. Jesus says, if you want to come after Me, you must deny yourself. That's an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Jesus doesn't say, I suggest that you deny yourself. He says, if you are my disciple, you must, must, must deny yourself. Then you must take up your cross and you must keep on following me. You can't follow me for five minutes or five years or 15 years. You must follow me all the way to the end. To deny self means to lose sight of one's own interest, to, to disown oneself, or to abstain. Do you know what it means to abstain? There's a vote. You've got some self-interest in the vote. And so you say, I'm going to sit this vote out. I, Jesus, when I come to you, I don't get a vote anymore. Jesus, when I come to you, whatever you command me to do is what I do. I don't debate it. I don't deliberate it. I just follow you. Following Jesus involves a daily decision. To lay down our rights, our voice, our privileges, our titles, our positions, and our comforts. And do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means following Him on the way to the cross. The kingdom, church, expands not only through the sacrificial death of its King, but also by the daily self-denying sacrifice of the kingdom's citizens. If we're going to follow Christ, then like Christ, we must, must must take up our cross. What does that mean? Here's what it means. The cross signifies a total claim on the disciple's allegiance and the total relinquishment of his resources to Jesus. And you say, that sounds radical. You say, Jesus is telling me to give up everything 
to surrender my rights, to give him my family, to give him my resources, to give him my cars and my houses and my job and my career and my calling and my profession and to lay it all on the line and say, Jesus, you command, you have authority, you have control over all of those things. Yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. As Aiken writes, the normal Christian life, the normal Christian life, involves dying to self that we could find life in Christ. The normal Christian life. May God give us a church full of normal Christians. Normal, radical, contagious, cross-carrying, self-denying, Christ-following Christians. Jesus, you might note, does not preach the prosperity gospel that you can find on just about any spiritual inspiration station these days. Jesus doesn't preach the prosperity gospel. He preaches the adversity gospel. Jesus will surely prosper us in eternity. He is prosperity. Knowing Jesus is prosperity. And if I have Jesus, then I can face any other adversity. The evidence that Jesus has already prospered us comes in our willingness to endure every hardship that is necessary for Him to be glorified in our lives. Prosperity is Christ, but it only comes to those who are willing to follow Him down Calvary's road. There is no crown, church, for those who will not take up the cross. David Platt captures this concern of American Christianity that we think coming to Jesus means we get our best life now, that we get all the resources that we would want. He captures this concern when he says this, we as American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting Him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced. Who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes. And who for that matter wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. God help us. Living out these tough truths, the tough truths of Mark chapter 8, verses 34, 35, 36, 37, and 38. That is where the joy in the Christian life is found, church. When you deny yourself and you find that you have all you need in Christ, that's where the joy is. The only way you can live that way is if you can really say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. And when that is true in your life, self-denial is not drudgery, it is delight. That is why Jesus doesn't just give the commands to deny self, take up cross and follow Him. But in verses 35-38, through 38, He tells us what is at stake if we don't do it. You see, the church, the problem is that we would fake it. That we would pretend that we know Christ and we say, yeah, I know about that self-denial and that cross-carrying, but that we would never actually be those who are denying self, taking up the cross and following Jesus. In verse 35, we learn that salvation belongs to those who lose their lives for the sake of Christ and the advance of the gospel. The safe life, Jesus tells us, leads to everlasting death. But daily dying for the sake of Christ and the gospel will lead to everlasting life. 
If you've ever received an email or a letter from me, you've probably noticed that I've signed it, if you paid attention to such things, with these words, for Christ and the Gospel. For Christ and the Gospel. I sign off on every letter and email, unless I'm writing a letter to my wife. I love you, babe, something like that. But, but if, I'm, if I'm writing to a fellow Christian, then I always sign with these words, for Christ and the Gospel. For Christ and the Gospel. I want every word that I've written. I want every thought that I have thought. I want every attitude of my heart. I want everything that I spend and say and do. I want Jesus to be able to evaluate it and say, this man is living for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. In verse 36 and 38 through 38, Jesus recognizes we are tempted to pursue the world's salvation rather than God's. What is the world's salvation? It's wealth. It's a long life. It's always avoiding pain and hardship at any cost. And we would rather pursue that salvation than the salvation that God gives. And so Jesus gives us a warning in these verses. People who try to save their lives by playing it safe are making the most dangerous play of all. Those who try to save their life on the world's terms will come up eternally short on judgment day. He will be ashamed of us, verse 38. Rejecting the way of Christ now in this generation, verse 38, will bring future condemnation. But walking with Jesus on the way to the cross will lead to a glorious eternity. The options could not be clearer. What is at stake if we answer the first two questions correctly? And then ignore how we must respond. What if we say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Jesus, you had to go to the cross. But I don't have any interest in paying the cross myself. I don't have any interest in taking up my cross and dying daily and walking with you on the road to Jerusalem so that others might know that it's real, that you really died, that you really saved me, that you really empowered me to pour my life out for others. Then Jesus says the cost of not paying the cost is everlasting condemnation. Whatever profits we accumulate in this life, Jesus says, will not profit us at all in the life to come. Do we really believe that? Whatever profits we accumulate in this life will not profit us at all in the life to come. Did you know that if you were to add up all the liquid capital assets in the world today, that it would be one quadrillion dollars? Who'd like to have one quadrillion dollars this morning? It's okay. It would be all right. If you had one quadrillion dollars, Dollars, it would still not be enough to offer to God in place of your human soul on the day of judgment. It's not enough. Our rescue required more than anything that the world could provide. It took someone of infinitely greater worth than the world's wealth. It took God the Son, the living Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah King, substituting Himself in your place. We have, verse 37, nothing to give in exchange for our soul. When we stand before a holy God, we have nothing to offer Him for our sin-ridden souls. So Jesus came and He took our place and He gave us His power to daily take up our cross and to live for His glory and the good of those who see 
see that the gospel really motivates us to live for Christ and for the gospel. Church, this is happening when families give up a second income to pour their lives into their children and have more time for volunteering in the community. It is happening when a single parent does whatever it takes to get the gospel into their kids' lives, no matter how exhausted they are. It happens when families take on a second income so that they can give it away for the cause of Christ. It happens when missionaries risk their lives to share the gospel in dangerous places. It happens when a phone call comes at the most inopportune time, but you figure a way to get out there and help your brother or sister in need. It happens when new believers are baptized and their families disown them. It happens when senior adults in this service generously generously support projects and programs that will touch generations that they will never know until Christ comes again. It happens when you serve in preschool ministry. Some of you taking up your crosses, volunteering in preschool. You know, we could use some help in preschool. And some of you know how to rock babies and work with toddlers. And you say, well, that's not very comfortable. I know that. But there's a need. And Jesus has said, true disciples of Christ deny themselves. And they take up their cross. And they follow Jesus. It's happening every week when doctors and nurses and builders and electricians spend weeks away from their family at their own expense to serve and share the gospel with people who can give them nothing in return. It's happening when you get terrible service at a restaurant on Sunday after you go, after you leave here and you're all happy and motivated and then you go to Cheddar's and you get a server who's had a really bad day and what do you, what do, you do? You sit there and you remember That's not my server. I'm here to serve my server. Yeah, she might be having a bad day. She might be having a bad week. But you remember what you've been delivered from, what you've been rescued from, what you've been saved from. And when the check comes and you can't believe that she didn't refill your Dr. Pepper and she forgot your order and everything was messed up, you don't say, well, that's what she gets. I'm going to give her a gospel track and a 5% tip. No, you lavishly bless that waitress because Christ died for you and you're going to go the distance and die for that server. And she opens up. She knows she did a bad job and she comes to your table and she grabs that check And you left her 20, 30, 40% tip and you put a note and said, I'm praying for you. I know it's been a rough day. It happens when a Christian wife discovers after her wedding vows that she's not married to a Christian man. But she keeps on praying for him and loving him. And doing everything possible in her power to show him Jesus through how she interacts with him. Every time, church, that we deny ourselves and take up our cross for the sake of Christ, Christ is winning. He's making us more like Jesus and He's drawing still more to Himself. Brothers and sisters, this morning the options cannot be clearer and the stakes cannot be greater. May God make us a church who declares, Jesus, You are the King. Jesus, you had to die for me. And because you did, we will gladly deny ourselves. We will gladly take up our cross and we will follow you. North Roanoke Baptist Church, let's be a church who together is willing to lose our lives 
for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, the price that your son paid is enough. Nothing else is enough. God, help us not to chase after what the world offers as a fake salvation. Help us not to fall prey to Satan's lie that our salvation could somehow come without the cross. And God, as You open our eyes to who You are, help us to be filled up to overflowing with joy that our lives have been purchased at a great price so now that we can give them so that others can behold Your goodness and Your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I I don't know where you are in terms of your walk with Christ, but I submit to you, you can't prepare and preach a sermon like this without doing some self-evaluation and recognizing there's some areas in your, li- in your life where you, you need to be more willing to, not, to, to deny yourself, more willing to take up the cross and follow Him. So this morning, the invitation is twofold. If you have been visiting and you'd like to join North Roanoke Baptist Church, if you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we'd invite you to come and join arms with us as we deny ourselves for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. And for others of you, you might say, I'm not sure that I know the Lord. Today would be the day of salvation where you say Christ paid it all. All to Him I give. Whatever your need, we invite you to stand as we sing.